Let's get our Bibles out this morning and turn to Psalm 118. And when you get there, you can uh, put your other finger in Acts chapter 4. Remember, we're looking at uh, some psalms that are referenced in the New Testament. And uh, so often these psalms are prophetic in nature, and then we find the fulfillment in the passage in the New Testament. Psalm 118, as we'll see in a few moments, uh, forms uh, 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 form the Hallel Psalms. And they were psalms uh, sang about festivals and on pilgrimages and things like that, especially as people were on their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So if you'll stand with me, I'll read from Psalm 118. I'm going to be reading verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes today and give us understanding from your word. Uh, Not just of the words on the page, Lord, but what they really mean and who Jesus is. And why his sacrifice for our sin, why his offering, why his blood shed would be an atonement for us. Why this was pointed to and told of from long ago. Heavenly Father, make this real in our hearts and our minds and fix it there that we might live in accordance with it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 118, and I'll begin in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. And I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me. Thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. So please be seated, and keep your finger in Acts 4, and we'll move there in, in just a moment. Now the psalm begins... Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, the goodness is the reason that the psalmist tells us to extol extol the Lord and to give praise to him. It's the particular goodness of the Lord, though. He's not satisfied with the general goodness. I mean, God's good, and and, uh, we wouldn't end there. I mean, even our words like God is really good, God is really, really good, it just doesn't cut it generally. But he wants us to zero in on a specific type of goodness uh, that he lists here in this psalm again and again. Uh, as an example, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his, and, and, and our pew Bible says, the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. You might have the steadfastness of the Lord, or as we're going to look at just a moment, another word that fits in there, because to describe that word in the English, is very, very difficult. It, it just no, is not a simple translation word for word. The Hebrew word is hesed. 
it's kind of a guttural word, hesed. Uh, and it's a word that is often translated loving kindness, but it is also often translated in, in an effort to express this particular type of love that the Lord has for those who belong to him. So it's covenant love. It's loyal love. It's steadfast love. It's loving kindness. There is so much packed into that one word that, that it is almost impossible to translate in one word, but I've finally come up with the word that we can understand. Jesus. <laughs> I know. You think that's like a kid's sermon. Well, I, I don't know. It's big and puffy and white. I know that it sounds like a cloud, but the answer has to be Jesus, right? <laughs> no, but, but what is God's ultimate demonstration of love to us? It is Jesus. It is his covenant love. It is his loving kindness. It is loyalty. It is steadfast. He is the pinnacle of God's love demonstrated to us. And this last, this Psalm 118 is this last psalm of the Hallel Psalms as they sang, especially going up to the Passover meal. And it was part of the Passover meal as well. And you can see this in, in, uh, in the New Testament where it says, and they, they, they had a supper and they sang a song and went out from there. Well, the song that they sang is Psalm 118. That was the last one they sang concerning the Passover meals. So they had taken the Passover, the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn, and this is what they sang. And they went out to the garden. So let's look in particular at verse 22 here. And this is the prophetic point of this psalm, which points to, and, and Luke will use it, um, or actually Peter uses it, Luke writes it down in Acts, Peter is using it as, as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 22 of Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We don't want you to think that it was somehow just, it just worked out that way. No, this was the Lord's doing. It had been planned. Uh, the very pe- and the very people who should be rejoicing over the presence of the cornerstone have rejected him. And God has made him that cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So that takes us now to Acts chapter 4. Let's flip over there and see what the Lord has for us in Acts 4. Peter is applying Psalm 118, and those, those the, mentioned about the cornerstone in particular, as he is brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is um, uh, the Jewish religious council, and it's made up of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees and uh, priests and scribes, and they are there to determine the validity of Peter's preaching about Jesus and those particular doctrines that he is teaching. They are the, in a sense, culturally and religiously within the Jewish world, the ultimate judges of doctrine at that time. And they've called Peter before them to give an account and a defense of Peter's teachings about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let me read from Acts 4, beginning in verse 5. And it came about on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem... And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who, and all, 
and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter just doesn't leave any wiggle room here. I mean, he just lays it out and said, this is the fact. Deal with it. Now, he is saying this to a group of people who don't believe this, who don't believe that this is true. But, you know, uh, if you're going to die, you better die for declaring the truth. Okay, not that they were about to kill him, but we know Peter does die eventually for his faith in Christ and declaring the truth. And Peter leaves no wiggle room or any option whatsoever. Let me say that again. Peter leaves no option whatsoever to, dis- to explain why Jesus came, why what happened to him was the Father's plan, and that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other option here. Peter teaches The doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of Christ. This teaching was, this teaching continues to be, and this teaching will be for all time offensive. I mean, it is an offensive thing to come and say, I I have the right answer. And there is only one right answer. Two plus two is four. Now, I'm still on the old math. I never got to the new math. But it's it's still four, isn't it? Okay? Two and two make four. We we were downstairs one day, and and Sally was was working with Carter on his homework. And and she said, uh, you know, it was, um, what was it? Make ten out of five and eight. I guess 13, isn't it? Five and eight is 13, but make 10 out of five. And now, I don't, I was, as I said, I'm still on old math. So this is, uh, I, I remember working with a slide rule when I was younger. How many of you engineers remember how to work a slide rule? Okay, we're doctors, you know, okay. Oh, those were the days, right? Okay, and, and just as an aside, I remember my father coming home one day with a calculator. Do you remember the first time you saw a calculator? And his boss had been in Japan on some, uh, you know, for some product or something, and he bought it was a, it was like a hundred dollars, and this was been, this has been the seventies, sixties, something like that, and all it did was add, subtract, multiply, divide. It had some memory, had a square root, and and we were just enthralled with this thing. Now you get those like in cereal boxes or something. Okay, there's this, it's easy, okay. Um, but there is one way here, and Peter says this is it. There's no other, no other way. There is one name. No other name under heaven which has been given to us by which men must be saved. 
This is offensive. This is an offensive teaching to the world that likes inclusion. This is an offensive teaching to those who want to say, oh, well, your, your opinion is just as valid as my opinion of things. And, and I have found over the course of, of time in, in studying these things, it used to be that that was just offensive. That if you said those things, the exclusivity of Christ, now there are those out there who will say it is immoral and it is dangerous to declare that only Jesus, Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Now think about some changes that have happened in our society and what that means. Now just think, who would have thought that the vice president of the United States would be criticized for his practice of never meeting alone with a woman or never going to an event where alcohol is served without his wife being present? I mean, who would have thought that that would be worth being criticized? You'd think that would be worth being exalted and, and lifted up as something that protects um, purity and protects uh, morality and, and, and keeps people from even the hint of sin. Now, Mike Pence is a Roman Catholic, and the rule that he follows has been affectionately termed the Billy Graham rule. Because it was years ago, and in fact 1948 is when this came about, when Billy Graham and, and many other evangelists were on the road for long stretches of time, and many of the people he knew were falling into sexual sin because they were away from their families, and, and there just were dangers out there. And he got the guys together, um, the, other, the, the two, other two guys, he got the other two guys together and, and said, we're going to make a rule. And we're not going to be alone with a woman. We're not going to go out to eat alone with a woman. We're not going to be in a meeting alone with a woman. Because we have to protect our purity. And we cannot even be, don't even let a hint of impropriety be around you. The gospel is too important to be dragged down by innuendo and, and uh, gossip and things like that. From that day on, Billy Graham says, I did not travel, meet or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. Now, I'll mention her name, Laura Turner, who is a Christian who writes often for the Atlantic, says, what the Billy Graham rule does is reduce women to sexual temptations, objects, things to be avoided. It is dehumanizing and anti-gospel to protect our purity even, and, and resist even the hint of impropriety is anti-gospel. That's Shocking that the world would say that today, but that's how things have gotten turned upside down. Now, there's a problem that comes from even within Christianity, this problem, because some have decided that they are embarrassed by certain teachings which are in the Word, certain teachings which form absolute doctrines and which are exclusive to Christianity, especially the teachings concerning the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, that is only found in Christ. And there are people who want to change those things from being exclusive to somehow being inclusive. Because inclusive sounds more loving and more attractive. And, and, and if we can just make a, a kinder, gentler form of Christianity, maybe the world will love us more. Maybe they will think that we, we're just nice people and they'll want to get on board with us and believe I mean, some of these things in Scripture are just too hard and too absolute. And nobody likes absolutes. In fact, as I said, they're becoming dangerous. Some think it is immoral to give a moral absolute in life. 
Now think about that for a minute. You suddenly are the problem. You are the problem. You in the pew, going to church, being believers, and, 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 and trying your best to live in accordance with Scripture. How dare you say that everybody else is wrong? How dare you stand up and say, yeah, I live my life according to this because it's right. So you're, you become a danger in society. How could you be so dismissive? How could you be so condescending and, and bigoted towards others who have a different point of view? You're excluding how they feel. You're not giving them adequate opportunity. Don't argue with me. This is what it says here. If <laughs> you want to argue, we've got to argue with, with the Lord and with Christ himself. There are Christians who are embarrassed by the exclusive claims of Christ as the only way of salvation. They want to opt for inclusivism. Make it some other ways. They want to say that Christ is your way of salvation. He's one of many, but you find it the best way. Or Christianity finds that this is the best way of salvation for us. Peter does not say that. Peter does not say that. Nor does the rest of Scripture say that. Now, you think, well, is this something new that's come along? No, this has been in the pipeline for a long time. I got this at seminary 20-plus years ago, uh, where actual professors were not inclined to stand on the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. Let's turn and look, and, and, and I, I want you, your eyes to see these things, not just to hear them. So turn to John chapter 3. You're probably going to know this one, but we're going to turn there anyway. We're going to look at just four, okay, just four of the exclusive teachings about Christ in the New Testament. So John chapter 3, verse 16. But we're going to go 17 and 18 as well. And the Bible makes plenty of claims about Christ and that salvation is found only in him. So John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And and is is there anybody else listed there? Through him and through this and through that? No, it just says through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he's the only begotten Son of God that that the world can be saved only through him. And what? Those who believe upon him will be saved. Those are absolute claims, exclusivist claims. There, turn over to John chapter 14. This is another one that you're going to know. John chapter 14, and we'll just do verse 6, just, just the one verse. I know that it, this, it, that whole section is a, is a conversation, but this is just the one verse we want to deal with. The words could hardly be any clearer here in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, those are the definitive articles. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
It doesn't leave any wiggle room. There are no exceptions to that. This is it. This is an absolute statement in Scripture. People hate these absolute statements because it doesn't leave any room for what I feel or what I think is right. I know Scripture says that, but well, that's a terrible, a dangerous thing to think that you could add to the teachings of Scripture in this fashion. William Hendrickson, who's a Reformed commentary writer, bigger brain than mine, certainly says, the absoluteness of the Christian religion is an urgent necessity of Christian missions. Think about that. Here's the outgrowth. If Christ is the only way of salvation, there's no other way of salvation except in Christ, what, is, what do we have to do? We have to tell people that. But what's going to happen when we tell people that? Some will not like it. Some actually will be upset that we would make such a claim that Christ is the only way. But that is our call in this world. Turn to Acts chapter 4. We've already read this one. We're going to read it again just to make sure it is fixed in our minds. Verse 12. Peter's words as recorded here in Luke are straightforward. They are our exclusionists. Uh, they're exclusionists. Uh, they they uh, wipe out any other opportunity for salvation except through the things of Christ. There is no salvation. In, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the stone which the builders rejected, the very cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ, the one that was foretold in Psalm 118. The one that our Heavenly Father has given to us and we can find salvation in. Simon Kistemaker, another Reformed commentator, says, The word must that is used here reveals a divine necessity which God has established according to his plan, according to his decree, to save us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the word must signifies that man is under a moral obligation to respond to the teachings of Christ. It's not just that he has provided this for us, but when you hear the gospel message, when you hear the message of salvation in Christ, you are under an obligation to respond to that. You think, really? I, I have to respond? Yes. The call upon the Lord. Here is the truth from God's word. Here is the fact that God loves us so much that he has given us his only son to give his life for us, to cleanse us from our sins. You are now under an obligation with that information. If you don't believe that, then you should pray that the Lord would give you faith and open your eyes and seal it in your heart. If you already believe that, if you have professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then what you need to do is say, how can I better live this out? How can I be dynamic in my Christian faith so that I can declare these things no matter what obstacles are in my way? Last one, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as I said, these are, just, these are just four of the many passages in Scripture that are exclusionists. First Timothy chapter two. Chapter two, verse five. 
For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator. There are no, it doesn't make any other opportunities there. There's no other way to get to the Father except through Christ, the one mediator, the only way. In the same sense that God is one, Christ is the singular mediator for us to get there. The world has big problems with this, especially the non-believing world, but even some within the Christian world have problems with this. That the belief that there is one God uniquely revealed in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life for all people for all times. And as I said earlier, the discussion has been changing over time. Not that exclusionism is false, but that it becomes immoral. That it becomes a danger to society. Used to be, well, you believe that Jesus is the only way. Well, I don't, and you're entitled to your opinion. Now it is you believe that Jesus is the only way. That's dangerous. That's dangerous talk, to talk in such a fashion. Let me give you an example. A guy wrote a book a while back, and he teaches at a Baptist-associated school. And, and the title of the book is, God a Christian? Now, what do you think the answer should be? <laughs> well, it, you know, figuratively speaking, yes. I mean, he is the author of Christianity. He is the one who does all these things. Uh, the author, whose name is Goodseat, comes up with an answer that, no, God is not a Christian. And he doesn't give evidence in Scripture because he can't refer to Scripture to defend his position because Scripture would not defend his position. In fact, if you look through, he has to reinterpret Scripture to make it fit his ideas and understanding. And, and he wouldn't turn to Scripture because he says the notions of inerrancy and infallibility are treacherous human fallacies. But instead, he says that Christians should weigh Scripture against the word that we have heard and seen from God in Jesus. Now, is Jesus revealed to us in any other place but Scripture? Well, we see to some extent him lived out in the lives of Christians. But when we want to know who Jesus is, we, we turn and we look at Scripture. So he is saying it's our experience of God our experience of Christ from our own thing, how we feel about Jesus, let's interpret his work through that. And would Jesus really be that hard and that pig-headed and that exclusionist to say that he's the only way? And the question is raised, well, how does he deal with things like John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. He says it's metaphor. Okay, that's, that's the easy way out. In, in my theological world, when I, you know, that's, that's the easy way out. If they don't like a passage, oh, it's metaphor. No, it's not. Because the preponderance, in fact, all the teachings dealing with this in the New Testament are that Christ is the only way. The only way that we might be saved. And that's a problem in Christianity because it's a binary choice, isn't it? This or that. It's either Christ is true and you believe in him or you don't. There's no, there, there, what about all this space? Is, is all this space here? Am I kind of a Christian here? Uh, well, the Lord might be working your heart and drawing, him un, drawing you unto himself. Or you might be, you know, you might be in the garage and thinking you're a car. And it's like, well, I've been in church all my life. Aren't I a believer? You're either a believer or you're not. And there's no room for it. others 
ear in Scripture. You can be knocking, you can be seeking, you can be asking, but until you have professed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are outside of the kingdom. You are outside of the kingdom. So anyone who wants to reject the teachings of the exclusionaryness about Christ, the exclusive salvation in Christ, has to pitch out so many things, reinterpret Scripture, make it into allegory or fable. It's not a salvation in Christ is not a societal question. It's not a personal experience question. It's a biblical question. We read it. It is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Our lives change. The Bible is crystal clear on this from beginning to end. And that's not the only one that makes people crazy. It's not the only one that people don't like, this, this, these teachings about what, what separates Christianity from everything else. Part of that problem is what have we become as evangelicals satisfied with in our faith? I want you to get your worship folder and turn to the back page. This passage has been on the folder for longer than I've been here. It is something that the church believes in very seriously. Something the elders believe in very seriously. You know, when we... We don't teach our children to pray just because, well, it might be good for them. Or it's something that little kids do, so that's good for them and that's okay. We pray because we believe we can go right to the throne of grace and the Lord hears our prayers. The Lord understands our hearts. As believers, that's exclusionary. He, believes, he hears us so we can come to him. Now... Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The elders just don't drive around in a minivan looking for people's houses to stop in and pray. But when the phone rings and somebody says, Will you come to me and pray? then we get in the van and go. Because if we would just showed up at your house and said, we heard you're sick, we thought we'd stop in and pray. What does, who's going to say no? Okay, really? Here, you've got all these nice people who want to come in and pray for you. Well, sure, come in. It might do some good. But if you call the elders and you say, come to my house and pray, because I believe what James has said here, that when they anoint me and when they pray over me, then I can find healing that the Lord has for me. It, it takes faith upon the person who is seeking it, who wants the healing. You have to believe that it's actually true, that this can happen. Uh, it has to be the faith of the person to call the elders. This is just, a, and, and we can't go through the entire list of those things, which are hard, which we don't like in Scripture, which are exclusionary and and. and demand our faith in the things of scripture there are plenty of other ones there but Paul said in Acts chapter 20 I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God the easy passages and the hard passages the passages we like and the passages we don't like I declare them all to you 
Paul's task was not to censor scripture, to make it palatable to the world in which he lived. In fact, it was never palatable then. It will not be palatable now nor in the future. It should be thought of as dangerous because it can change the world. It can change the world. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus didn't summon us to a faith that's watered down or a faith that is sanitized uh, to modern sensibilities. He called us to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. This is nothing less than a death sentence to ourselves. That's what he came to do. That's what he calls us to do. That's what he gives us the power to do. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these can be hard and difficult words to deal with. In a world that wants everybody to feel good about everything, in a world that says you need to accept everybody, and everybody's opinions have validity, we come to your word and it says salvation is only in Christ. That's it. There's no salvation anyplace else. You can't get to the Heavenly Father, but through Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's, it's not as if these things are a secret. You have given us your word. You have made it clear here. And then you send us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts. Heavenly Father, today we pray that our eyes and hearts are open. That you would speak to us and make clear that this is truth. I might not understand everything in the Bible. I might only understand a little bit of it or perhaps none of it. But we need to understand on this day that Christ came to give his life for us. He entered Jerusalem knowing that in the next few days he would give his life to atone for our sin. We who sit here in this sanctuary today, he died for us. That we might know salvation. That our hearts might be right with you. Speak to us today, Heavenly Father. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. That we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior this day. And know his claims are true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.